We're going to begin by reading chapter 9, verse 1. I'm calling this chapter a recipe for judgment. And you'll see why, because it has all the ingredients. Jeremiah begins, he continues his message at the gate. And remember in chapter 8, verse 22, where he was talking about, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? He has left us with this image of terror and judgment. And so he will begin to lament for the people. Look what it says in verse one. Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place for travelers that I might leave my people and go from them for they are all adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. And like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil. And they do not know me, says the Lord. Everyone take heed to his neighbor and do not trust any brother. For every brother will utterly supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. Everyone will deceive his neighbor. And will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will refine them and try them. For how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall not I avenge myself on such a nation as this? I will take up a weeping and wailing for the mountains and the dwelling places of the wilderness, a lamentation because they are burned up so that no one can pass through, nor can men hear the voice of the cattle, both the birds of the heavens and the beasts have fled. They are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate and without an inhabitant. We're going to pause for just a moment. In chapter 7 through 10, Jeremiah condemns the people of the covenant, the people who deceived themselves, who believe that just by being people of the covenant, that will be enough to ensure their safety And their freedom from judgment. Jeremiah will grieve over the sin and the suffering of Israel. And then he'll contrast the true and the living God with the false idols. And so Jeremiah outlines in graphic terms what happens when a people embark on a course of self-deception. Knowing that sin corrupts and destroys So in this passage, Jeremiah will note the sins of the people, adultery in verse two, dishonesty in verse three, 
The people are only telling lies and treachery in verse 2, in verse 4 through 9. Idolatry in verse 13 and 14. In what way were the people treacherous? Well, they took advantage of each other in verses 4 through 9. In what way were they idolaters? They made and worshipped the images of the dark Canaanite god Baal. Remember that God had made a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And clearly, the Old Testament paints a picture that the nation of Israel was in a unique position as a nation. God didn't treat Israel like he did every other nation. As a matter of fact, he would bless them and specifically communicate with them because he had a plan and a purpose for them. And that's the idea. One sign of that covenant was the right of circumcision. You'll remember that God called Abraham to be a separate person who is going to produce a nation. But remember that that covenant and the purpose of the covenant was to bring forth a Messiah, that God was going to use this special people and those special circumstances to create a mechanism where a Messiah would be born. And so that God would be able to reconcile not just the Jews, but all people to himself. And so. What happens to the people when they become corrupt? The religious leaders and the people had placed, remember, a great deal of confidence in the fact that they were in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was the city where the temple was kept. They played a lot of emphasis on the fact that God, through Moses, had given people the law. And so the temple and the law along with the religious rite of circumcision, created within some of the Jewish people the sense that, that they were invulnerable, that God wouldn't judge them. Now, the temple and the law and the covenant were all important, but there was something that was way more important. Faith, trust, confidence in God. Over and over again, the reoccurring theme Without faith, it's impossible to please God, that God was interested in people drawing near to him in a true relationship. So what happens when religion, when the rituals, when the rules, when the temples replace a real relationship with God? What happens? People begin to trust the temple and the rules and the law instead of the Lord. Religious people probably are the most difficult to reach with the gospel. Religious people trust their religion. I go to church. I have a Bible. My mother was a Baptist. My father was a Baptist. Do you know what I'd be if I wasn't a Baptist? Thoroughly ashamed of myself. The idea being that it's the religion that they're counting on. Whether it's Protestant or Catholic or whatever religion you want to insert it's the idea that the religion itself will, will save them. This was the problem that John the Baptist had. This was the problem that Jesus had. This was the problem that Paul had as, 
as John the Baptist called the religious leaders and the people of Israel to repent, as Jesus called the people to repent, as Paul brought the gospel to the nations and he asked people to repent of their sin and believe the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And so, in their religious pride, the people felt that they were fine, that everything was just fine. And the same was true of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was trying to help the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem understand that they were right on the precipice of judgment. Remember, the northern armies are coming from Babylon. They're going to take over the city. So what happens? What happens when religion and rules and relationship replace confidence in God? It's judgment. What happens when a person trusts something other than Jesus to ensure their acceptance before God? It's inevitable. It's judgment. So the people of Judea and Jerusalem, they felt no need to repent or to believe. They felt because of their history, because of Moses, because of the law, because of the temple, because of the covenant, that there was nothing that could happen to them. But Jeremiah will present three disturbing truths that even in the presence of the covenant, they can't have an excuse to continue in sin and rebellion in their way of thinking in verses one through seven. We have the covenant. Well, guess what? Having the covenant doesn't give you permission to continue in sin. The presence of the covenant didn't ensure the absence of judgment in verses 7 through 16. And a simple heritage does not ensure spiritual understanding in verses 17 through 26. So the recipe in the chapter is going to look something like this. A recipe for judgment. Well, continue to excuse sin in your life, verses 1 through 7. A recipe for judgment. Embrace the false notion that nothing could happen to me that because of my religious background, because of my religious training, because of my religious sentiments, that nothing could happen. And a recipe for judgment, reject spiritual understanding and refuse to hear from God, verses 17 through 26. That's going to create a recipe for judgment. So again, in verse one, it begins... Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. There's a reason why Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet. And that's the image that he gives. The metaphor, he goes, imagine my head is like an ocean. Imagine that my eyes are fountains in which an inexhaustible source of water could produce an inexhaustible source of tears that I might weep day and night. You understand what he's saying. In order to communicate his grief and his sorrow over the impending judgment, he's trying to communicate his sentiment. And by the way, Jesus wept. Paul wept. Jeremiah wept. Now, you have to understand what they're weeping for. They're weeping for the spiritual condition of the people. They're weeping for the spiritual condition of a specific kind of a person, though. And that's the person who refuses 
to turn from their sin, who refuses to embrace God's remedy. That's the idea. By the way, the emphasis in modern pulpits is laughter, not sorrow. We sometimes fail to read or believe James chapter 4, verse 9. James wrote to his contemporaries, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of God and he will lift you up. Vance Havner wrote rightly, Never in history has there been a more ribald hilarity with less to be funny about. Here's the idea. Everybody wants to laugh and who can blame them? Who can blame them? Because laughter takes some of the edge off. It takes some of the pain off. It takes some of the sorrow off. But what Jeremiah is trying to communicate is there's certain things that aren't funny. And that when you're living under this cloud of judgment, when there is this intense, persistent resistance and rejection of God that is going to bring an inevitable judgment, the prophet expresses his emotion. And by the way, as we look at the emotion of Jeremiah, it's very, very interesting. There's this raging conflict that's going to well up inside of the prophet. Jeremiah has expressed grief, deep sorrow, but he's also going to express deep revulsion. How do you do that? How do you have grief and sorrow and revulsion all in one heart? Well, every parent knows if you are a mother or a father, if you've ever given birth to a child, if you are, if you've ever raised a child, if you've ever loved a child, is it possible to love a child with all of your heart and be disgusted by their actions? It is possible. This last week, as I watched the shootings unfold in Oslo, Norway, and as we watched the unthinkable, as we watched a man in calculated premeditation kill 60 plus, I guess the numbers have gone to 70 plus people, wounding 30 more people. His father spoke from France the words that every parent should never have to speak. When asked what he thought about his son's action, he said, I wish he had killed himself. Can you imagine being a parent and have to utter those words? I wish my child had taken his own life rather than commit such an atrocity. Can you imagine being placed in a position where you have to make such a statement? And so Jeremiah is communicating his grief. He's communicating his sorrow. He's com communicating his tears. But remember what these tears are. They're not just the tears of Jeremiah. They're the communication of a compassion that's inside of the heart of God himself. And so in verse 2 it says, Oh, that I had hid, or oh, that I had in the wilderness, or a lodging place for travelers that I might leave my people and go from them, for they are all adulterers and assembly of treacherous men. Jeremiah is expressing the desire to run away, to find some place to hide, to abandon his calling and his mission. Jeremiah is saying, 
Sometimes I felt like I just needed to run away and go to a place where there's some peace. Somewhere to escape the intense sorrow and the impending doom that is about to take place. But guess what Jeremiah knows? Jeremiah knows that his gift and his calling and his ministry are to his people. That no matter how painful, no matter how sorrowful, no matter how reluctant they were to change, no matter how much they resisted the message of God, no no matter how much they resisted the love of God, no matter how much they resisted the grace of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, Jeremiah knew that this was the ministry that he had been called to. And by the way, he's going to repeat that. If you turn just in your Bible to chapter 40, verse 6, it says, Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, to Mitzpah, and dwelt with him among the people who were left in the land. Jeremiah doesn't make a run for it. He is going to stay with them. He is going to stick it out, so to speak. Jeremiah dreamed of a life where he could live in normal social contacts with people. In in verse 17. As a matter of fact, if you just flip there, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider the call for the mourning women that they may come and send for the skillful wailing women that they may come. In other words, he's going to invite these people to their own funeral. He's going to say, I wanted to leave. But I won't leave. I wanted to get away, but I can't get away from the call of God. The people's repeated sin, adultery, treachery had alienated them from the true and living God. And by the way, when you're surrounded by a people who live in constant sin and constant adultery and constant treachery, constantly alienated from God, unwilling to turn from their sin Do you think he can get to you after a while? How many of you have said, I wish I didn't have to work where I'm working. I wish I didn't have to go to this particular school. I wish I didn't have to be in these particular circumstances. I'm surrounded by people who hate God and who hate God's message. And by the way, if you hate God and you hate God's message, doesn't it make sense that they're going to eventually hate God's messenger? It makes perfect sense. And by the way, when Jeremiah speaks of a lodging place for travelers, a lodging place for travelers in verse two, he's not talking about the ancient version of the Motel 6 where he's going to go and he's going to leave the lights on for you. This isn't some bed and breakfast retreat in a beautiful mountain that he's talking about. You know, the word the lodging place is really a crude tent. The image that you need to have in your mind is this is what Jeremiah is wanting. A place where he can hang a blanket on a stick and spend his life in solitude and discomfort. But that would be better than what he has. That's the picture. The people were guilty of physical and spiritual idolatry. And we're going to speak about that at length in chapter 10 verses 1 through 25. 
Jeremiah reminds the people that they were on a runaway course, that they were running away from the Lord. He reminds the people, you ran away from God. Not only did you run away from God, but when you ran away from God, you embraced idols. He reminded them that they ran away from their spouses and they embraced their neighbor's spouses. Paul told the Thessalonians that it was the will of God, their sanctification, that they abstain from sexual immorality, that everyone should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles who don't know God, that, that no man go beyond and defraud, that is commit adultery against his brother. And Paul goes on and he talks about the idea that this isn't who you are because the Lord is the avenger of such. Exodus twenty fourteen. don't commit adultery. And so Jeremiah, Jeremiah is basically saying everything that God has asked you to do, you did exactly the opposite. One Bible writer translates that expression, an assembly of treacherous men. He says that they were a gang of crooks. But he still identifies with his people. You are my people, he says. Oh, that I had a wilderness, a lodging place for travelers, that I might leave my people. He still identifies with them. He understands in all of the pain and all of the heartache, he's still one of them. And in verse 3, and like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. Jeremiah links the concept of deceit to not knowing God. They are not valiant for the truth on the earth, for they proceed from evil to evil. They don't know me, says the Lord. Here's the idea. Jeremiah is basically saying, when a person lives in the land of lies, their heart full of lies, their mouth full of lies, but they say, I know God. They're not telling the truth. Now, by the way, in the Bible, the tongue is called a sword in Psalm 57, 4, a sharp two edged sword, an arrow in, in chapter nine, verse eight. But rarely is it called a bow, maybe in Psalm 11, 2. So when he says, and like their bow, they have bent their tongues for lies. What do you think Jeremiah is trying to say? What's the image? Here's the idea. Their tongues are like elastic, like rubber bands. Their tongues are ready to stretch and to shoot arrows of deceit. That's the metaphor that he's giving. James refers to the tongue as a type of evil or something that sets things on fire. And he says that the people were either unwilling or unable to stand up for the truth. In other words, even when they were exposed to the truth, even when they spoke about the truth, they wouldn't stand up for the truth. And by the way, the nation had become a nation of moral and corrupt weaklings. 
unable to tell the truth, unable to walk away from corruption. When they saw something or they heard something that was wicked, they refused to stand up and say, look, that's just plain wrong. What happens to a nation that refuses to stand up and say, look, that's not right. That's not wrong. That's not right. How can we come to a place in a country where we say that murder is good or that killing your children is good or that educating them in a way that make them corrupt officials or or corrupt citizens in a more corrupt society? How can we stand up and say, oh, by the way, that's a good thing. When truth become lies and lies become truth. The people wanted to live according to their own will. They wanted to live according to their own heart. They wanted to live according to their own plans and their own purposes. And guess what? That meant denying God. That meant neglecting and ignoring their neighbor's needs. The people made their choice and expressed what they really loved and what they were really loyal to. And it wasn't to God. It was to their own selfish desires and their own lusts. And that's what it says. They proceeded from evil to evil. They don't know me, says the Lord. Why? Because they were far more interested in satisfying themselves than in loving the Lord. And by the way, there's an interesting statement in verse three. They are not valiant for the truth. That means they're not willing to stand up for the truth. But this is actually the name of a character in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He names valiant for the truth after this particular passage. It serves sort of as the inspiration for the character in John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. Valiant for the truth is that person Who's willing to stand up when everyone else is sitting down. Valiant for the truth is the person who's willing to say, I know it's not popular to say this, but the Bible is true. Jesus Christ is Lord. When the Bible says that this is right, that makes it right. And when the Bible says this is wrong, that makes it wrong. And in verse four, it says, everyone take heed to his neighbor. And do not trust any brother, for every brother will utterly supplant and every neighbor will walk with slanderers. The expression in Hebrew is kind of a play on words. It says every brother is a supplanter. Akob, Yah, Akob. Do you remember in the Bible, Abraham had a son named Isaac and Isaac had a son named Jacob. It's that word. Akob. It meant supplanter. And the point of the passage is that people were betraying family and friends. No one would trust their neighbor. Everyone was willing to sell his neighbor out for just a little bit more. In other words, the people were guilty of slander, friends deceiving and slandering each other. Gossiping and backbiting filled their mouths. Few people were willing to restrain their tongues. But the point of the passage, in a way, is a kind of a play on words. Because remember, Jacob was that way. And God had changed Jacob's name to Israel. The idea being, 
Jacob, I've called you and I've saved you, not so you can supplant your neighbor or your brother to take advantage of other people, but I'm calling you to be somebody who's different. What's the application for you and for me? You're a Christian. A current follower of Jesus. God didn't save you so that you could continue to live the life that you used to live in the way that you used to live it. God saved you. He called you. He redeemed you. He reconciled you. He called you out of darkness and into light so that your life could be different. It isn't supposed to be like your neighbors or maybe even like your unbelieving family. Your life is to be different. It's it's to be marked not by complaining, but by gratitude, not by unending sorrow, but joy. Now, there are times when we express sorrow and there are times when we express weeping and there are, are times when we express pain. But guess what? Our life is going to be different. And so. Here's the idea. The people were beginning to live a life of deception. Look at verse five. Everyone will deceive his neighbor and will not speak the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves to commit iniquity. In other words, they practiced deception with their neighbor. And then they practiced deception with their friends. Then they practice deception with their family. And finally, they practice deception with their self. Deception was so common that the people were disgusted and weary of piling one lie on top of another lie, one deceit on top of another deception, with so much lying and with so much deception. Guess what the weight of the deception began to do? It began to tear the fabric of their soul, to tear the fabric of their family, to tear the fabric of their community, to tear the fabric of their social order. It all began to unravel home, government, religious institutions. The weight of deception cracked the foundation of their very civilization. Does that sound familiar to you? Some people might think, well, how is a lie that harmful? Well, the one lie in and of itself in isolation doesn't seem to be that all all that problematic. But guess what? Once you begin to lie about something, then you begin to lie about another thing and then another thing and another thing. But what happens to a world when you begin to lie about everything? What becomes possible? Is it possible to have a family? Is it possible to have a church? In verse 6 it says, Your dwelling place is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me. And that's an interesting insight. If you look at it carefully. In verse 6 it says, Your habitation is in the midst of deceit. Here's the idea. You live in the land of lies. Guess what? The children of Israel weren't supposed to live in the land of lies. They were supposed to live in the promised land. 
What is the promised land? It becomes a type and a picture of Jesus. What is the land of lies? The land of lies is that place where you entertain the notion that what God has said about himself is not true. That what God has said about you is not true. That what God has said about your neighbor is not true. That what God has said about heaven is not true. That what he said about hell is not true. You see, what happens the moment that you begin to supplant, pervert, distort, undermine the truth of the revelation of God that's given in the Bible and that concerns the person of Jesus and the way that you're saved and the reality of what it means to be saved in direct proportion to the deceit you embrace is the amount of distance that you will place between yourself and God. Doesn't that make sense to you? If Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, does it make sense to you that he's going to dwell in the land of deceit? That he's going to make that his habitation? The prophet spells out how the people moved from one lie to the next lie, from one deceit to the next deceit, from one evil to the next evil. He spells it out. Supplanting, deception, falsehood, oppression, treachery, unfaithfulness, disloyalty, lying, dishonesty. The expression, through deceit, they refuse to know me, places the blame squarely on the sinner and the offender. I don't know you. Why is that? Is it because God has made himself hidden and unknown? Jesus came to the earth openly. Jesus spoke openly. Jesus died openly. There was nothing hidden. There's nothing mystical. There's nothing in the dark. God hasn't created a mechanism to keep you in the dark. It's Satan who's created the mechanism to keep you in the dark. That's why the Bible says that he is the author of lying. That he's the source of lying. That he never stood in the truth. And so the Bible says, stand in the truth. Stand in the truth. Make your stand in the truth. And so, a recipe for judgment. Embrace the false notion that it can't happen to me, that I'm exempt from judgment. Look at verse 7. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, which is a, a, a type and a picture and a title of his power. Behold, I will refine them and try them. For how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? Now, again, the Lord likens his role as a refiner. And this reminds us of those of you who have been studying in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 6, verses 27 through 30. Remember, the book of Proverbs says that the melting pot is for gold and silver. The very fact that you're placed in that position of refinement is there's something worth saving. There's something valuable. That's the idea. And asks what other refinements or options are available to him. In other words, here's what, what the Lord is basically saying. What else can I do to the daughter of my people? How shall I deal with them? It's a question. 
I'm going to ask you a question. When God asks a question in the Bible, is it because he doesn't know the answer? No. Does God know the answer to every question? Even the ones he himself poses. God isn't asking for help and he isn't asking the question in order to invite an answer from you. Here's the idea. The people's sin was forcing God to act. The people's sin now isn't simply inviting judgment. The people's sin is demanding judgment. For how shall I deal with the daughter of my people? I, I need you. I'm going to help you think this through. God asks this question for your benefit and for my benefit. Because I'm going to ask another question that I hope you know the answer to. Is the option for God to leave his people in their sin? Is that an option? Leave them in their sin. Leave them in their wickedness. Leave them in their rebellion. Leave them in their isolation. Leave them in their condemnation. Leave them in the, in the place. They brought it on themselves. Let's just leave them there. Here, here's the idea. God won't leave them in their sin. Why do you think that's important to you? Because he won't leave you in your sin. He's not going to leave you in your rebellion and your sin and your disobedience and your stupidity. He's going to say, I can't leave you in these circumstances. I'm going to have to do something pretty dramatic in order to wake you up. I'm not going to leave you in your sin. Now, ultimately, the answer is Jesus isn't going to leave humanity in their sin. He's going to send the Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to come. He's going to live. He's going to die. He's going to rise from the dead because human beings don't have to go to hell. They don't have to live in sin and die in their sin. And so here's the idea. God won't leave the people in their sin. God called his people to be righteous and holy. Because he won't leave them in their sin, what are his options? Dun 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 I know it's Jeopardy. What are his options? He's not gonna leave them in the sin, that's not an option. Wipe them out. Just destroy them. Fry them. Eliminate them, annihilate them. Is that a good option? No. Because God made a promise. A covenant. I'm going to use this people to bring forth a Messiah who's going to reconcile the people of the planet Earth to himself. I can't leave them in their sin. I can't wipe them out. In one sense, the Lord is asking, hmm, what can I do seeing as these people are so wicked? Hmm. Discipline. Leslie, a Bible 
teacher says, how can I turn my gaze away from their evil? Moffat, how can I overlook my people's crimes? How's God going to overlook your evil? How's God going to overlook your crimes? Destroy you? Leave you? He's going to bring judgment on your sin. For the Christian, that means he brings Jesus into your life. For the person who rebels and rejects, the judgment was meant to create an atmosphere of cleansing. In other words, he's saying, what are my options? I'm going to have to cleanse you. The judgment is going to have to come. I'm going to create an atmosphere of cleansing in the hopes that the people in that judgment and in their sin will cry out to me and say, okay, I think we made a mistake here. Rebelling against you, rejecting you, denying you. That's not a good idea. By the way, if you're afflicted, or if you've ever found yourself in a position of discipline, the point of the discipline isn't to make you crazy. It's to create within your heart a complete willingness to depend upon the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. In verse 8 it says their tongue is an arrow shot out. It speaks deceit. One speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, but in his heart he lies in wait. Here's the idea. The people were guilty of scheming evil. They were guilty of hypocrisy. They professed friendship, but they plotted harm behind the other person's back. They set traps to accumulate more wealth, more power, more fame, more honor for themselves. Each person wanted more and more and more and more, even if it meant hurting their neighbor. I want what I want, but I also want what you want and what you have. And in order to get what you have, I'm willing to lie, cheat, and steal. I'm willing to tell you to your face that I like you, but behind your back, I'm willing to stab you in the back. By the way, when a people are guilty of scheming evil and hypocrisy, professing friendship, but doing harm, are they in trouble? Yeah. As a matter of fact, I don't have time to read it all. But if you have a chance... Sometime before the end of the week, turn to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 10 and just give you a tiny taste of what Jeremiah is talking about. As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seek after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They practice deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul talks about the picture that Jeremiah paints. If there's everyone's a sinner and no one does good, how can we solve this problem? The reality? Jesus. 
Jesus, the forgiver of sin. Jesus, Jesus, the justifier of the unrighteous. In verse 9, it says, shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Before we answer that question and before we look at that verse, I need to remind you of something. I want in your mind to paint a picture rather quickly. Where is Jeremiah as he's speaking these words? He's at the gate of the temple. Remember, the people are coming into the temple. This is, a, this is the sermon at the, at the temple gate. The people are piling in. They're piling in for the festivals. Where is Jeremiah? He's at the gate of the temple. What else is Jeremiah? He's filled with the message of God. He's filled with the spirit of God. Now Jeremiah speaks with the authority of God. The man of God filled with the spirit of God, speaking under the authority of God at the temple, which is about to be destroyed, pronounces judgment. The pilgrims. They come to celebrate the feast. And Jeremiah sobs. He weeps. He cries. He shakes. His hands are shaking and his heart is shaking. He is sobbing and weeping as he's pronouncing the judgment. It's in that sobbing and weeping. He asks the question. Does God have the right to punish his own Creation for wickedness and rebellion. What's the answer? Because, by the way, you, you can't have two answers. The, the answer is, he has no right. Or he has every right. Which do you think is true? He has every right, or he has no right. You know, you would think that the answer is obvious. But we live in a culture and a society that doesn't believe the obvious. We live in a culture and a society that questions whether or not God has such a right or has such an obligation. We live in a culture and a society that simply says, why does God do what he does? What gives him the right? That's because we're so distant from God. That's because we're so estranged from God. It's because we don't understand his righteousness and his holiness. And we don't understand our own sin. What kind of a world should we be allowed to live in? One where God has no rights to exercise sovereignty... Will we cleanse ourselves of our lawlessness? Will we cleanse ourselves of our violence? Will we cleanse ourselves of our immorality? Let's just for a moment, just humor the question, just for a moment, and side with the person who says God has no right whatsoever 
And let's just for a moment say he has no right. And then what is going to be the satisfying solution to the problem of iniquity and wickedness? Are we going to be able to solve our problem quite apart from God and quite apart from his revelation? Human beings left to themselves, absent God, are they going to live in peace and tranquility and love and generosity and selflessness towards each other? What do you think the answer is? I think you know the answer. That unless God exercises his right to to be God, there's no hope. And so Jeremiah in verse 10 says, I'm going to take up a weeping and a wailing for the mountains. And for the dwelling places of the wilderness, a lamentation because they're burned up so that no one can pass through, nor man can hear the voice of the cattle. Both the birds of the heavens and the beasts have fled. They are gone. He's weeping and he's crying. Can you imagine? I want you to imagine this for a moment. He's weeping. And he's sobbing. As he's weeping and he's sobbing, people might be asking the question, why are you crying? I'm crying for the mountains. Why? Because they're going to be burned. Why are you crying? I'm I'm crying for the dwelling places that are going to become a wilderness because they're burned up. All of the trees that you see, they're going to be burned down. All of the dwelling places that you see, they're going to be destroyed so that no one can pass through, nor can men hear the voice of the cattle. You know why they can't hear the voice of the cattle? Because they're all dead. There's nothing left alive. Both the birds of the heavens and the beasts have fled. Why? Because they're gone. Why? Because the judgment has come. Because the burning has come. Jeremiah's poem is now an invitation to the funeral. And the tears of Jeremiah are meant to reveal the compassion of God. If you're thinking that this is a situation where fire is coming down from heaven and God is laughing up in space, the answer is that's not true at all. It's because discipline is the only option that the people have left open to him. In verse 11, it says, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruin, a den of jackals. I will make the cities of Judah desolate without an inhabitant. Why? Because the judgment has come. And the city can't be lived in. It's only a place where wild animals who feast on the carcass of the dead are welcome. In verse 12 it says, Who is the wise man who may understand this? And who is it to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken that he may declare it? Why, why, why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through it? Almost a similar situation is expressed in Hosea chapter 14, verse 9. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know it. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble. When it says in verse 12, who is the wise who can understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken? 
when he says in, and, and he asks the question, why at the end of verse 12, why does the land perish? It could be. That Jeremiah is asking a question, he's taking a jab at the false prophets. The verse is really difficult. Is Jeremiah asking the question? Is God asking the question? Is Jeremiah communicating the question as if God is asking the question? Perhaps he's taking a jab at the false prophets who are trying to explain the disaster by ignoring the cause. Why? By the way, Job asks that same question. Why is this happening? Even Jesus asked the question. Did you know that? In Matthew chapter 27, verse 45, now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Matthew 27, 46, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lava sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Job asks, why? Jesus asks, why? Jeremiah asks, why? You might even ask, why? I want to know why this is happening. I want to know why my life is so bad. I want to know why horrible, terrible things are happening in my life, but you want to ignore the cause. Are you living a life of rebellion and disobedience to God? Have you heard what he had to say and then ignore all that he says and then ask the question why the Lord describes the people and gives the answer in verse 13. And the Lord said, because they've forsaken my law, which I set before them, they have not obeyed my voice, nor have they walked according to it. The judgment has happened. The people are asking the question, why? And the Lord says, you've forsaken my instructions, you've refused and ignored my voice. And when he says, because they've forsaken my law, which I set before them, that setting before them was by Moses at Sinai on the ongoing revelation of the prophets in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14 in Romans chapter 10, verse six, over and over and over again. Lord, what do you want us to do? I'm going to tell you what I want you to do. This is what I want you to do. We don't want to do that. Yeah, I haven't changed my mind. This is what I still want you to do. In the New Testament, we cry out, what do you want me to do? I want you to forsake your sin. I want you to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, and I want you to love him. What if I don't want to do that? There is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. What if I want my sin and my guilt to go away, but I don't want Jesus? Then your sin and your guilt will never go away. It will never go away. In verse 14, it says, but they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals, which their fathers taught them. The Lord spells it out. Ephraim decided to go his own way. 
He decided to follow his own heart. Ephraim has gone after the Baals, adopting the wicked ways of the previous generation. By the way, will God allow people to walk according to the dictates of their own hearts? The answer is yes. Why didn't God stop them? Because God gave you the ability to choose or choose otherwise. You have the ability. You can make the choice. You can stand up or you can sit down. You can go left. You can go right. You can turn from your sin or you can turn towards your sin. You can continue to run away from God. Or you can turn around and run right directly into his arms. And in verse 15, it says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them this people with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. Jeremiah uses a metaphor of wormwood and gall to describe the meal that the Lord will serve them. Here's what you'll get. If you run away, if you embrace judgment, poisoned food and poisoned water. By the way, you may not know what wormwood is. It's a a woody shrub. The genus Artemisia of the daisy family. It has an aromatic taste. It was used as an ingredient in the ancient times for vermouth and absinthe. As a matter of fact, one of the names of the shrub is absinthia. Um, It was used in medicine and it produces a keen sense of bitterness. And so wormwood became a type and a picture of all that creates bitterness and grief. And by the way, there's a star that will fall from the sky in the book of Revelation and it will be given the name Wormwood. Wood, a source of bitterness and grief that will infest the world. In Amos verse chapter five, verse seven, it says, you who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. And then he says in verse 16, I will scatter them also among the Gentiles whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send a sword after them until I have consumed them. This isn't a metaphor. This is the truth. This is a historical reality. When he says, I will scatter them to the Gentiles, the Babylonian armies will come capture most. Those who manage to escape will go to Syria and Egypt. They will go anywhere. They will go everywhere. They'll go anywhere and everywhere to get away from the judgment. But guess what? He says, and I will send a sword after them until I have consumed them. The people of Judea and Jerusalem will be taken captive. They'll be hauled away. And the verse taken all by itself is devastating. Because there's no promise. It's upsetting. If you read verse 16 and verse 16 alone, you wouldn't be left with the impression that God is going to leave a remnant. But he will. 
As a matter of fact, when it says, I will scatter them also among the Gentiles whom neither they know or nor their fathers have known. The, the, the Hebrew word for know is yada. And yada can mean a lot of different things depending on the context. It can mean about knowing the Babylonians in the sense that clearly they would have been familiar that this nation existed and that those people existed, but they've never known them in an intimate sense, in a fundamental sense, particularly when they became the slaves to those people. When judgment comes, people who embrace sin... They may have thought about sin and they may have toyed with sin, but they've never known the full impact and the bondage and the slavery that sin brings. And so the metaphor is such that God will ensure that the judgment will be thorough. Those people who try to escape the judgment and find themselves in a foreign land, God says, you think that you've escaped Judgment, and you think that you've dodged a bullet, but you're wrong. By the way, so far, the people have been warned. Be careful. Don't trust religion. Don't trust the fact that you have a temple there. Don't trust the fact that you're circumcised. Don't trust the fact that you have a covenant. There's only one way to escape judgment. That's the point of the passage. How do you escape judgment? Here's Jeremiah's reoccurring theme. Stop trusting human wisdom. Stop trusting human wealth. Stop trusting human beings. Trust the Lord. Most people trust wealth or they trust wisdom or they trust strength. By the way, can human wealth save you? Can human strength save you? Can human wisdom save you? Obviously, the answer is no. And so here's what the Bible invites you to do. You want to avoid judgment? Trust Christ. Trust Jesus. Trust him alone. Not human strength, but God's strength. Not human wisdom. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And so, not human wealth, but the wealth, the lavish, extravagant wealth that's found in the person of Jesus Christ. So, we pause. We'll pick it up at verse 17 when we return. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the word of God. Lord, we know that there is truly, Lord, a recipe for judgment. That, Lord, if we pretend that sin isn't real or we pretend to excuse our sin and continue in our sin, if we continue in the false notion that somehow, some way, I will be the one person who will not have to face the consequences for my wickedness and my rebellion. That, Lord, we're living in a dream. That there's really only one way to escape the judgment. 
and that's to turn from our sin and run into the loving, gracious, merciful arms of Jesus. Lord, I pray that for that person who finds themselves on a wrong path, going in a wrong direction, that, Lord, they'll stop, that they'll turn around, and they'll run directly into your arms. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.